Our reading for today is Judges 14, 1 through 20. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people. And you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Just a couple announcements before I begin. Uh, We started the Bible study uh, this morning, and so it will continue for the next three Sundays at 945 uh, in the children's uh, room. So uh, 
please come and join us uh, for that study. And then uh, also, beginning next week, uh, we are going to do something uh, different, and I want to just kind of give you a heads up on it. Uh, As you know, we're sending two teams this summer, one to West Virginia and another to Kenya. And in years past, um, you may have received support letters uh, asking for prayer support as well as uh, financial contributions to support those teams. And sometimes it gets a little difficult because um, maybe there's, you know, a dozen people on a team and you get a dozen letters. I used to get, I remember I used to get like 20 letters from 20 different people uh, going on a mission trip. And it's hard then to figure out, you know, how much to give to each person and so on. And others of you uh, may want to just contribute. I'm quite sure uh, how to do that. So next week, uh, you will see uh, in the fellowship hall something uh, we're calling the Giving Garden. The Giving Garden, um, because it's built on a lettuce, a lattice, haha. Um, and uh, in part because uh, we're focusing this summer on the parable of the sower, so the, the garden motif is there as well. Uh, and on this lattice, this garden, you will see a uh, hundred of these types of envelopes, these squ- okay, pouches. And um, inside, when you open it, there will be a uh, card with prayer requests, so you can tack that uh, on your refrigerator or something to pray for the teams uh, during the summer. Uh, and each of the envelopes will have a number between 1 and 100. 1 and 100. And so what we're asking you to do, if you want to, is to take an envelope or multiple envelopes and put in the dollar amount that is on that number. So if you take the number 11, you can put in $11 and give that as an offering. And we're asking you to put it in the envelope, uh, into the offering, so that we can uh, have these envelopes back. Because as you can see, they're, they're handmade, and they're just uh, lovely, and uh, we hope to use them again in, in future years. And so uh, the reason we're doing this is it'll give you an opportunity. For those of you, for example, some of you uh, young people, maybe you, know, you want to contribute, but you only have a dollar to give. So then you want to come early next Sunday and grab the envelope with the number one on it, because there's only one, right? Uh, others of you will want to you know, pick a number that is meaningful to you. Maybe your favorite football player is an offensive lineman, and he wears number 78, for example, right? So you want to take that, and that's the number you want to put in. Others of you, uh, you want to do it as a family, so maybe you take number 50, and each member of your family you know, can contribute. You can have a child at a dollar, and you can add more, whatever. So uh, just take whatever number uh, that might be meaningful for you, and it's just a way to contribute. And all the monies that uh, will come in uh, will divide between the two teams uh, to, uh, for their uh, work this summer. So that's just, again, an, an opportunity for you uh, to do that. Does, does that make sense? So uh, uh, I'll probably explain it again next week, but that's, that's the idea behind the, uh, the giving garden. So, um, okay. Uh, and the other uh, announcement I need to make is uh, Pastor Danny uh, had to go to the uh, emergency room this morning uh, he was feeling uh, just some pain and uh, aches in his stomach, and so he's at the uh, ER today, and so uh, I thought we'd just pray for him uh, before we begin. Uh, I, so let, let's do that. Uh, Lord, we, again, thank you for this time that we have together, and we look forward uh, to all that you are uh, going to uh, teach us, all that you have for us uh, today and every day, and we want to lift up uh, Pastor Danny at this time. Uh, we pray for just... Uh, a healing. We pray for uh, quickness uh, through the, uh, the ER system. We pray that a good diagnosis would be made and that uh, he would be healed 
and that he'll be uh, back to full strength uh, as quickly as possible. We pray for uh, Kemi and the boys and that uh, the whole family, God, that you would just um, hold them uh, during this time, uh, encourage them, and strengthen them. So we thank you uh, for them. And now, God, we ask that in the hearing of your word, uh, help us to listen. Help us to really hear your word and to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is now the... uh, Sixth sermon in a series of sermons I've been preaching on the book of Judges. And uh, Samson is the last, the sixth of the six major judges in the book. And he, of course, is the best known. Uh, Even people unfamiliar with the Bible have heard the story of Samson's superhuman strength and this tragic haircut by, oh, what you do to me, Delilah. But that's next week. Today... You heard the less familiar story involving a different and unnamed woman. If you had a chance to attend a small group or FG this week, you had a chance to study about how an angel of the Lord announced to an unexpecting barren woman that she would bear a son and that he would begin to deliver Israel. Uh, You know, and it's, it's... Whenever you hear these kinds of birth announcements by an angel, you know that this child is going to be something special, right? Like uh, with Isaac, uh, with uh, Elizabeth and Mary, Hannah, and and others. And so we're going to expect something special. In fact, the unnamed mother was further told that in preparation for his special uh, purpose, that he would become a Nazarite, someone set aside and dedicated for God's purposes, that she too was take part of this vow, that she was to abstain from alcohol and avoid unclean foods, which is, you know, still pretty good prenatal advice even today. But then she oddly names her son Samson, which means something like sunny or little sunshine, maybe even a playful Mr. Sunshine. Not a terrible name, But it's a name that lacks any sort of explicit acknowledgement of God and of this this angelic announcement, right? If an angel of God tells you that you're going to have a son and he is going to begin to deliver your nation from the Philistines that have been oppressing your people for 40 years, wouldn't you name him at least a part of his name you would want to attack on, you know, Something that indicates that this is of God, right? A little E-L at the end, like Samson L, you know, just something to acknowledge that this is of God. You know, maybe name him Joshua. God is my salvation, right? Something to indicate this is, this is something of God, but we get nothing here. Like, why don't they at least acknowledge that? Well, I've been really uh, enjoying um, a new book by the uh, poet, uh, Ocean Vuong, Vietnamese-American writer, uh, his debut novel called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. It's a fictionalized autobiography uh, written as a letter from a son to his uh, Vietnamese immigrant mother. And in it, he says this. He, this is what he writes to her. That as a child, he didn't know that the war was still inside you. And that once it enters It never leaves, but merely echoes a sound forming the face of your own son. He realized that living through the Vietnam War, 
colored all of his mother's decisions and actions, and that that reality, the experience of that war, was central to understanding his mother and himself, that apart from that, there was no way to make sense of his own life. And we know that, of course, those who live through trauma of war or colonization or other catastrophic violence like 9-11, oppression, suffering, that they cannot help but be fundamentally be shaped by that experience. And I think that's what's going on in Samson's family and the rest of Israel. For 40 years, they were under the rule of the Philistines. And so in, in that period of time, their faith got diluted. Their distinctiveness got flattened out. And survival meant that they had to adopt the ways of the Philistines, the local cultures, and become like the Philistines. And, and so I think that's the context that we have to understand Samson's story. Now today, our introduction to Samson begins with the word woman. That's the first word that Samson says. It, I know the translation is a little bit different, but, but in Hebrew, it's a little awkward in English. Um, but the very first words out of Samson's mouth is this. Woman I saw in Timnah from the daughters of the Philistines. Now get her for me. In the Bible, it's always important to pay attention to the first things that someone says because it will usually tell us something essential about that person. Woman I saw, now get her for me. His parents rightly protest his choice. They want him to marry someone from among their people, someone who shares their faith, as diluted as it may be. But Samson disregards their wishes, and his choice of phrasing is quite revealing. He says, her, get for me. First he said, woman I saw. Now he says, her, get for me. It sounds a little Neanderthal, right? Can you imagine, parents, can you imagine your son demanding of you, woman, I saw, her, get for me, now, right? You would ask gently at first, son, why, don't, why do you want to marry this woman who is totally wrong for you and with whom you have not even had a single conversation. And here's Samson's response. Because she is right in my eyes. He has not, as far as we know, said even a single word to her. All we know is that he went down to this village and he saw her and that was it. He sees her and he wants her. Only after his parents make the arrangements for the marriage does he even talk to her. And a second time we are told that after the conversation, she was right in Samson's eyes. It doesn't say that you know, he talked to her and discovered that you know, she was awesome, that she was smart and witty and talented, that she was a person of faith, or that he struck by any one of a thousand different possible qualities that you would want in a spouse. Instead, he talked to her, and all he discovered was that she is still right in my eyes. She still looks attractive. That's it. It's confirmed. She's hot. That's all that matters. Now, I know, of course, that physical attraction is how dating 
and marriages usually start. That's how it was for my wife. (laughs) But as she will tell you, as she will tell you, that is not a good foundation to build a life together on. It's something she regrets every day. (laughs) To all the, the single guys out there, in case you're wondering, Samson is not a model of courtship to be followed. This is not what you do. This is not what you tell your parents. Right? At this point, as a parent, if all that matters for marriage is she looks good, right? I mean, you just probably smack your son. Like, what are you talking about? But not Samson's parents. Despite their objections, they go ahead and make the arrangements for the marriage. And then on the way to visit the bride's family, we're told Samson, oh, he just happens to kill a lion. No big deal. Uh, and then later, on, on their way back home, he finds honey in the carcass, and he eats it, and he gives some to his parents. And he knows that as a Nazarite, as a lifelong Nazarite, he's not supposed to touch dead things. He's not supposed to eat unclean things. And, you know, honey in the body of a dead animal is considered unclean. And so he doesn't tell his parents. He keeps it a secret. But in doing so, he passes on the ritual impurity to his unsuspecting parents. His actions tell us that he has no regard for his Nazarite vow, his commitment to God, and that he has no regard for his own parents. Now, as for the wedding itself, it has to be one of the worst weddings ever. It starts with lust and ends with death. And in between, Samson makes this terrible bet, putting his bride and his wedding guests in a terrible, untenable position. Again, showing total disregard or concern for the welfare of the people in his life. The riddle Samson poses is just, it's just not a fair riddle. It's not fair. Because it's something that only he would know the answer to. In the context of the wedding, scholars have suggested that there were actually many possible answers to the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Could be vomit, right? From eating and drinking too much at this seven-day feast. And out of the strong came something sweet. Could be love. Why not? It's a wedding. You know, it's like when you play with your kids, you know, the game, um, I spy, right? I spy something red. That's not a fair question, right? Because it's completely arbitrary what you pick. So, you know, with kids, hopefully, you know, you're, you're a good adult and you give, your, you give the kids lots of opportunities to guess, right? And you're not going to punish them if they get it wrong. There are lots of opportunities, so that, but eventually they'll get it. But it's, ultimately, it's really not a fair question because it's completely arbitrary, something that you've picked that they have no... Uh, you know, real inkling of what that might be, other than that clue is some, something red. It's, it's just kind of a fun game. Um, but what Samson does is cl- more like what happens in, in, the, uh, in the Hobbit. Remember the story of the Hobbit? Um, Bilbo gets uh, stuck in the caves and he meets up with Gollum, and Gollum says, uh, he and Gollum play this uh, game of riddles. They tell each other riddles. And if you don't get the riddle right, Gollum says, if I win, I get to eat you. If you win, then I'll show you the way out. So, the, right, so they go back and forth telling riddles, and they keep getting it right. And, and Bilbo runs out of riddles to ask. 
And uh, he's like panicking. And then he sort of blurts out accidentally, what's in my pocket? Because he's sort of thinking to himself, what's in my pocket? And Gollum says, that's not fair. That's not a fair question. Like, there's no way to solve that. Like, how, how could I possibly know that? There's no way to, you know, think through that, right? But Bill says, well, too bad. It's, uh, that's my question. And um, he gets out, as you know. Um, it's not a fair question, but Bill will ask it anyway. And it's the same thing with Samson. It's, it's not a fair question. It's not a question designed, hey, let's, you know, have a fair contest here. It's completely unfair, but that's he does. And, and so why would he do that? Why would he ask, make this kind of bet with his guests? Is he just being greedy, trying to humiliate his guests, to impoverish his guests, you know, to, to get these uh, articles of clothing? Does he really need 30 suits? Maybe he's just drunk and shooting off his mouth and, you know, um, who knows? Whatever the reason, uh, we find that it ends very badly. His guests can't solve it, and so they threaten his bride and her family uh, with burning. And so she goes to him, she cries and cries until he finally relents and, and gives her the answer. And then when Samson realizes that his you know, wife told him the answer, uh, he just gets violently angry, and he uh, goes and kills taking the, the spoils of the killing uh, to give to his guests to uh, keep his part of the bargain. Um, and, and the Bible says it doesn't actually say he got them clothes. It says he took their spoils. And uh, it's probably uh, armor that they're talking about. So, you know, he gives them armor instead of these fine clothes uh, because, one, armor is more valuable, so they're not going to complain about it. But secondly, I think he's, it's a way for him to say, don't mess with me, right? This is what I can do. And so, yeah, you won this round, but I'm, I'm going to get you back. That's our introduction to Samson. Um, last week, like Jephthah's story, I think Samson's life uh, is mostly a warning for us. And so let me just make a, couple of, uh, a few reflections with you uh, this morning. First, um, Samson's life reminds me, again, that we have to walk by faith, not by sight. We have to walk by faith, not by sight. Last week, Jephthah got into trouble because of his mouth. He kept opening his mouth to negotiate better deals for himself and eventually trapped himself with the vow that he had to keep or he thought he had to keep and sacrificed his only daughter. Samson, however, he gets into trouble not because of his mouth so much, but because of what he sees, because of his eyes. Not his mouth, but his eyes lead him to destruction. He follows his eyes rather than trusting God's word. Instead of listening to God's word regarding the purpose of his life, instead of trusting God's word regarding the vow that was made on his behalf, Samson follows his eyes. Whatever he sees, whatever looks good, that's what he's going to go after. Without regard to God's word. And this really is a theme now we're going to see for the rest of the book of Judges. Samson wanted the woman of Timnah because he saw that she was right in his eyes. And that is the attitude that will describe what happens during the time of the Judges. It's a description of what's really happening in, in our time today. Judges 17.6 uh, tells us this is what the people were doing. And the very last verse in the book of Judges, the very last thing 
that we read in the book of Judges, which summarizes the whole book, is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what Samson said. She was right in my eyes. That's what I'm going to do. And that really characterizes the time of the judges. So he sets the pattern, a way of living. And and it's a way of living that I think we are very prone to follow as well. um, Because, you know, we live now in an unprecedented, unprecedented time of visual overload. We've moved away from a, a hearing culture, a reading culture, to a seeing culture, right? We, we see now as our primary form of communication, of learning, and entertainment. A few of us, not many, but a few of us remember when we used to listen to music. Do you remember that? Just listen to music without music videos. But it's very hard for you now, right, to imagine music without the accompanying musical videos. I've been told that um, K-pop bands, the boy bands, some of them, they will often have a member of the band who is known as the visual, right? That he's just there because he looks good. That's it, right? So you got a guy who does the rapping, guy who does the dancing, right? Or they're specialists. But then there's a guy who's just there mostly. He's not the best singer. He's not the best dancer. But man, he looks good. And then we want that, right? It's very hard to imagine K-pop without all the dancing, right? You can't just, just listen to the music. Think about professors today. Like, people can't lecture now without, you know, PowerPoint and other visual aids. Churches, too, and preachers. Not me so much, but, you know, increasingly using visual aid to communicate. Now, again, I'm not against the use of visual aids uh, in teaching. And, in fact, I'll probably use something next week, so, okay. (laughs) Um, But I think there is a danger. Because we live in such a visually dominated culture, that is very easy to just follow our eyes and to ignore hearing and listening to the word of God in simple faith. We look to God in visually stimulating experiences rather than in the simple hearing and obedience of God's word. People wrongly believe that faith is seeing is believing. It's not. It's not. That's not what faith is about. It's about hearing the word of God and being obedient. That's faith. It's not, you know, God, show me something so then I can really believe you. Uh, as you know, in, in biblical times, it was largely an oral culture. And so in the scriptures, we hear again and again this idea of listen to the word of God, to listen with the intent to obey God's word. And it's because, you know, when we listen, it forces us to, to really uh, pay attention in a passive, receptive way. You, you can't bring much to it. You, you're just receiving. That's how grace comes. It's not something that you're, you're actively pursuing. It's, a, it's being open to the grace that might come. Uh, during FG on Friday, someone shared about a time in high school where she didn't talk uh, for months as a part of a spiritual exercise. 
And she shared how fruitful that was because she was forced to really, really listen. And she heard things that, you know, she would otherwise not have heard because, you know, she would be normally be talking and doing other things. I'm not suggesting we do that. But Jesus said, he who has ears, let him listen. Or metaphorically, if you're going to look, look to God. Look to God. Um, I remember my kids, um, when they were in, uh, I think, middle school and high school, they all had to read uh, Zora Neale Hurston's novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Uh, it's about a, an African-American uh, experience in the American South in the early 20th century. Uh, I haven't read it. Um, and I'm not sure my kids read it either, actually. Um, <laughs> It's a tough book, I understand. Uh, but I understand that the title comes from a scene in which a ferocious hurricane is threatening the lives of the characters. And, and this is what, what it says. The wind came back with triple fury and put out the light for the last time. They sat in company with the others in other shanties, their eyes straining against crude walls and their souls asking if he, God, meant to measure their puny might against his They seem to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God. But their eyes were watching God. This is what usually, you know, this is what usually happens, right? That it's in these moments of utter helplessness, when faced with powers beyond our control, that we turn our eyes to God in desperation. And sometimes that's the only way our eyes get turned toward God. And Samson's life tells me that I have to be deliberate about keeping my eyes focused on God all the time. As the writer of Hebrews says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Walk by faith and not by sight. Secondly, I think we have to walk by faith, not by fate. We have to walk by faith, not by fate. As many people have said regarding Game of Thrones, a good beginning does not mean a good ending. We all have known people in school and at work who are super smart, super talented, super resourced, but who ended up ruining their lives or as utter failures for a variety of reasons. Samson's life began with a very good thing. An angel announced his birth. I mean, that's about as good as it gets. But we see that his life does not automatically measure up to that good beginning. What Samson's life tells me is that even though he appeared to have had all kinds of advantages, it did not mean that his life was already all worked out, that he was fated somehow to do these great things for God. That somehow all these promises would be fulfilled automatically without anything he does. You know, it's like when we baptize our infants at our church, the parents make promises on the child's behalf. We make promises to help raise a child. We hear the words that in baptism, God claims us for his own, that that promise of God never changes. But that doesn't mean that that child automatically is going to come to faith if no one does anything. It doesn't mean that they will automatically become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. It requires a lot of faithfulness on the part of the parents and the church. 
it's not fate that will make that child. It's faith. It's faith. It's a reminder, again, to all of us that it's possible to have all kinds of good beginnings, all kinds of good advantages in your life and still completely screw up. That it's possible for godly parents to raise a child who is completely rebellious to God. It's also possible that an angel of God speaks to you and disappears in a flame of fire and you still don't get it as parents. It's easy to blame others. You could point to your DNA, to your circumstances, to your upbringing, where you went to school, where you went to church, who your parents are or aren't, and say that this is why my life turned out this way, that I was fated to have this kind of life because of all these things. But it's not true. It's just not true. Circumstances make it more, may make it more difficult, sometimes much more difficult, but you are not fated to faithlessness. You are not fated to faithfulness. For the most part, that is up to you. God is serious about preserving your freedom. Love requires it. And God is bound by love because God is love. Thirdly, you know, Samson's life for me highlights again, as I've been saying now for several weeks, the importance of knowing God's word. The absolute importance of knowing God's word. You know, I've never preached this text at a wedding, um, even though it's about a wedding. No one's ever asked me to preach on this text at a wedding. Probably nobody will ever ask me to preach on this text at a wedding. But there's a really good lesson here. Um, In case you're not sure, again, a good rule for a wedding is do not tell a riddle that your guests can't guess and extort money from them. That is a bad way to do a wedding. The problems of this wedding, this marriage, resulted from the lack of knowledge about God's word. Samson was not doomed. This marriage was not doomed. But he made some bad choices without God's word. In particular, two words come to mind. First is Exodus 20.12. The Ten Commandments. Honor your parents. Honor your father and your mother. Now, I realize that in our culture today, children are not going to let their parents make an arranged marriage for them. I, I know that. At best, they might allow you to set them up on a date. They trust their friends and their dating apps more than they trust you. I know that. But that's another sermon. In the beginning of Judges, we heard about the marriage of Othniel and Aksa, of how good that relationship was, right? Where the parents were supportive, where the parents made effort to bless their children. There was a sort of mutuality of looking out for one another and blessing one another. But here, instead, we have Samson who feeds his parents impure honey, and dismissing their advice in regard to the pursuit of this unwise marriage. He does not honor his parents. He he ignores the Ten Commandments, and instead he shames them. He speaks rudely to them. Get her for me, now. 
and he forces them to make the arrangements for a marriage that they did not approve. He trusted his eyes rather than seeking the wisdom of God and the word of God and honoring his parents. The other word that comes to mind is Genesis 2.24, to leave your parents and to cleave to your spouse. You know, I tell everyone during marriage counseling, uh, premarital counseling, that the decision to marry means that your spouse is now going to become the most important relationship in your life outside of God. That among human beings, that this is the most important relationship. And this person, this relationship, has to take the highest priority in your life. Above your parents and above your future children, if you have them. The Bible says you have to leave your family, your parents, and you have to cleave. That is, you have to be glued to become your spouse, to become one, to become one. You can't get, you know, tighter than that. You are required to always honor your parents, but your first priority must be your spouse. Now, you know, I've done a lot of premarital counseling, as you know, with, uh, with this church. And what I've realized over the years now is this, that this is really the fundamental tension you have to figure out as a couple. How do I honor my parents on the one hand, and how do I leave and cleave to my spouse? Right? Figuring out that balance, navigating that tension, finding ways to both make your spouse the highest priority and at the same time honoring your parents, like that, especially in, in an Asian American context, like that is the most difficult thing. That really is the most difficult challenge that young couples and older couples face. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, Samson did it. He failed on both accounts. Look what he does. When, a bride, when the bride asks him the answer to his riddle, what does he say to her? Hey, I haven't even told my parents. I'm not going to tell you. Right? That means his loyalty to his parents are higher than his loyalty to his bride. Although it doesn't really say that much because you know, we know that he doesn't tell his parents anything. <laughs> and then when his guests guess the riddle correctly, his words reveal that he doesn't even trust his wife. He doesn't know her. He doesn't recognize that her life was threatened. Right? And instead, he makes this sort of sexual innuendo regarding perhaps like, you know, her role in finding out the answer. Now, we can't blame her because, you know, um, she's a Canaanite uh, for not knowing the Bible, but, but she takes the same approach. She also has other loyalties. When she's threatened by her guest, what does she do? She doesn't go to Samson to discuss it with him, to figure out a way out of it together. Instead, her first priority is to protect herself and her parents. Her family is more important to her than her future with Samson. She complains to Samson, you have put a riddle to my people. Her people are still more important. And when she discovers the answer, she tells her people the answer. She is cleaving to her people and her family rather than to Samson. This is just the opposite of the kind of loyalty that Ruth demonstrated with her mother-in-law when she told her mother-in-law, don't make me leave you. I'm going to cleave to you. Your people will be my people. Your God 
my God. Now, again, I know that this culture tells you, you know, you can marry whoever you want, be with whoever you want, as long as you feel love toward each other and everything's going to be fine. You know, it, it's possible. It's possible. But most of the time, it's not. Because marriage is very hard. It's very hard. And we're given words to help us. It's not automatic. But God's word can help guide you through the difficulties. And it's these words that you have to trust by faith. You have to to know these words, and you have to trust them by faith. Let me close with this. You know, I know now, especially now, you know, all of the judges and all the stories in the book of Judges, it's just mostly warnings, right? It's just things are just getting worse and worse. And so we might wonder, you know, isn't there any good news? Isn't there anything hopeful here? Well, I think there is. I think here's the good news in the story of Samson in the reading today. Because his life is a warning primarily, but what it also tells us is that God is still working and God's work gives me hope for myself, for the church, and for the world. Samson is a self-centered jerk. He has no concern for his vow. He has no concern for others. This is not someone you want to be friends with, probably. He doesn't care about his parents, his bride, his tribe, his God. He's frivolous in the use of his powers. He's clueless about the dangers around him. He cannot keep his own passions in check, and he acts violently and impulsively in obedience to his appetites, to his eyes. And yet, and yet, God uses him to deliver his people in grace. The key theological reflection is in verse 4, where it says that Samson's parents didn't know that God was using this occasion. God was using Samson's broken vows, his lust for this woman, as the means by which he delivers Israel. It's not that God wanted him to do these stupid things, but that even when he did, God is able to bring about his grace of delivering his people. It's like what Paul told the Romans. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things are not good, but all things work for good for God's purpose, even the life of Samson. Because God can use every occasion and opportunity and person, no matter how flawed they may be. Samson's actions are clearly incongruent with God's will and God's character, but God is still able to use him. God does not endorse his behavior, but God demonstrates that he is able to redeem even through someone like Samson. And that tells me that God is able to redeem our sinful natures, our sinful desires, into advancing God's will and God's work of salvation. Just as God will later use the workings of the Romans and the Jewish leaders in crucifying his son to use that evil to bring about the salvation of the world. So I know God is working. I know God is behind the scenes. That ultimately everything works toward God's plan of redemption and toward God's glory. God's perfect love, his plan of salvation for me and for the renewal of the world is not going to be thwarted by someone's disobedience, stupidity, violence, or ignorance. We may suffer if we choose those paths. 
we will miss out in the work of God. But regardless of what we do or fail to do, God's purposes for me and for the world will be accomplished. God will keep his promises. Proverbs 16.9 says that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It means that I can trust God with my eternal destiny, that God will care for his bride, the church, and that the whole world will be renewed. That's my hope. Because God has made a promise, I can trust God's word. That's my hope. So even when it doesn't look like it, even when I mess up, or the church fails, or the world looks like it's in absolute chaos, I know that this is not God's will, and that God can still redeem that moment, and that God is still working in those moments through those broken things, and that God's purposes will be accomplished. God's ultimately good and perfect plan for you, for me, for the church, for the world, will not be frustrated by anyone's failures. I can trust God's word and God's promises. You know, I hope that's an encouragement to you and that that gives you hope. Because as I said, you know, we're, we're, the time of the judges is not unlike the times that we are in now. But there is hope. It's not just negative examples. Because we can trust God's word that God is still working in the midst of all of this chaos. Keep your eyes on Jesus and trust his word. Let's pray together. God, we uh, again thank you for your word. Um, And as we begin to think about um, what this means and and your work uh, in the world, help us to have the hope that you are in the midst of our world and that you are working even when it seems like there is no hope. God, help us to keep our eyes upon you, to walk by faith, to walk by faith in accordance with your word. Help us to trust your word, to know your word, and to make decisions, good decisions, based on your word so that our lives may prove to be one of faith and faithfulness. We ask all this in Jesus' name.